So it would be good to talk to people that know things that I don't know, like what ethics means. So I thought, I, 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 obviously this is a sort of talk about the drug laws, but I, every now and then I'm going to throw in an ethical question so you can tell me the answer at the end, all right? <laughs> Just a few things about who I am. So I'm a psychiatrist with about 30 years' experience, quite a lot of it. My training was done here in Oxford, but uh, yeah, so I did my postgraduate degree, my DM here between 1792, and then I went up the road to the Littlemore in the Warnford to work as a psychiatrist. Most of my career has been spent looking at the effects of drugs in the brain. Uh, published quite widely, I've worked in the US and Australia, but uh, mostly in the UK. And uh, I've had four children, and uh, they've all survived just, and uh, I think I, I didn't, didn't have grey hairs before I had them. <laughs> and of course, I'm an ex-government drugs advisor, and that's really why people have heard of me. Uh, for nine years, I was chair of the Scientific Committee of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. And then, uh, then I was promoted to be chair of the full council, and within a year I was sacked. And uh, I'm going to show you a picture of Margaret Thatcher later on, but I'll also remind you of one of her famous sayings. In, in the context of the IRA, she said, we must not give them the oxygen of publicity. And... Unfortunately, the Labour Party was so anti-Thatcher, they didn't even bother to learn her, one of her few positive messages, because sacking me did more for the cause of rationality about the drug laws than anything they could have done otherwise. So here's the summary, the cartoon, um, caricature of the sacking. It's accurate in all but one uh, component, which is the white coat. Of course, psychiatrists don't wear white coats, but, but doctors do, so I have to get a white coat where I'm on television. These are the scales of justice, and this is the key debate. On the left-hand side, beer and fags. On the right-hand side, um, strange green chemicals in plastic bags. And you see, the caricaturist has got it exactly right. Yeah, I've got beer and fags causing more of a problem than these strange new green chemicals. So that was what it was about. Well done. Um, the other interesting thing about this front page was this. So Andre Agassi, the American tennis player, uh, brought his biography out that week. And the lead was not how many majors I won, but he confessed to taking crystal meth, methamphetamine. And that's a remarkable juxtaposition about of two events relating to drugs. So I was telling the truth about drugs and being shut up, and he was telling the truth about drugs in selling lots of books. <laughs> and, and it does sum up this really intriguing ambivalence we have in society. The Agassiz story is a fascinating one because he tested positive for crystal meth when he was Wimbledon champion and that presented the tennis authorities with the same kind of problem that the cycling authorities had to wrestle with with Lance Armstrong. You know, do you apply your rules to your number one player, uh, performer? Because if you do, you're going to bring the sport into disrepute. Uh, and lose a lot of sponsorship money. <clears throat> so they did what I thought was a really very English thing. They decided to ask Andre to tell the truth, just like they did with Lance. Did you ever take crystal meth? And he said, no, of course I didn't. Your test must be rubbish. And they said, oh, thank goodness now. <laughs> <laughs> Go away and play some more tennis and never pee into a bottle again. And he never did. Uh, and then, of course, after he finished playing and after he married Steffi Graf, etc., he decided it was time to tell his life story. And I don't know why he 
confessed about crystal meth. I don't know whether it was because he'd been carrying the burden of guilt all those years. I sort of suspect not. Uh, I think it was because his publisher said, well, look, here's 10 million more dollars if you actually tell the truth. <laughs> Did he confess? We don't know, but he probably made a lot more money. But he sums up the ambivalence. So people are fascinated by people taking drugs, getting away with taking drugs. Uh, um, but the governments aren't very keen on scientists telling the truth about drugs. Why was I sacked? They said I was getting involved in policy, which I thought was kind of strange, because I thought that's, that's kind of what I was supposed to do, really. You know? And I said modern, current drug policy was not evidence-based. They said I was giving mixed messages, which uh, I said horse riding was more harmful than ecstasy, which of course is true if you look at the evidence in terms of deaths, etc. Uh, that alcohol was more harmful than cannabis. And in fact, the government's chief scientist agreed. And they said lots of confidence in me, which of course is the political term for the fact I wouldn't toe the line, and, and that was the problem. And I wouldn't essentially shut up even when they were continuing to do very ridiculous things with the drug strategy. Now, of course, you never know with government whether there was, it was a conspiracy or a cock-up, you know, or sometimes it was a combination. But what was remarkable about that weekend, it was a sort of perfect storm, because my comments went out on a Thursday morning, and um, I was sacked on the Friday. And this was the interview with the uh, science minister on the Monday. If I'd been asked by the Home Secretary before he took that decision, I would have said that a decision to dismiss Professor Nutt would have caused serious concern, he told the Times. Um, unfortunately, because he's very rich, he was able to race his classic racing car in Japan that weekend, so he was, he was face-shifted, so they couldn't speak to him. So he, he wasn't consulted in the decision. Here's the government chief scientist, John Bennington, a colleague of mine at Imperial College, who said, amongst other things, he backed me. And over my claim that alcohol and cigarettes are more harmful than cannabis, he said, of course he's right. Unfortunately, he was in Kazakhstan that weekend. <laughs> and also the home office and the government phones don't work that far away. So, so the scientists in government were... Uh, effectively silenced, and it was left to the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary to wreak their anger. Now, what's interesting about it is that one of the reasons it's been such a uh, continuing saga is that the press were completely polarised. So this is some sort of the press. The Sun called me Professor Poison, and the Mail, Melanie Phillips, you know, who's... Uh, I suppose, taken on the challenge of trying to uh, undermine me completely. She said, I'm part of a manipulative, subversive, and lethally dangerous clique. Now, Melanie is an extremely smart woman, and she's right. And the only problem is, I've yet to find anyone else who's part of that clique. <laughs> so if you're in the room, we, we sit there afterwards, and then we can really start things. <laughs> and Peter Hitchens, he's not, has he come yet? No. No, he's not here. He just lives up the road here. He called me a ninny brain menace to the nation of young people. And he thought he was being so clever because he thought I didn't know what ninny meant, but I do. I know it's a Shakespearean word for a fool. So let's talk a bit about science before we get into, uh, into ethics. So what is a drug? And who should say what a drug is? Well, the most important slide you'll see all day is this one, because this is what the drinks industry not only says, <laughs> but also... <laughs> has persuaded the world, or certainly the, the Western world, that
that this is true. Most people, if you say it's alcohol and drug, they'll say no. And you'll say, yeah, but come on, you know, you drink it because you like it. It makes you feel better. And, uh, and you, might, you might get drunk, you might fall over, it might change your brain, and you might have a hangover. And they look at you as if you're a bit silly, and they say, look, if it was a drug, it would be illegal. <laughs> and the drinks industry, as I say, has pursued this wonderful policy. It's so good at persuading people that alcohol is a foodstuff or a lifestyle choice or an entertainment uh, that... Now, people often think that the, what the recommended threshold limits for safe intake of alcohol... The drinks industry has got many people thinking that they are the optimal level of intake for their health benefits. They are, it is truly one of the great uh, exercises in, in, in dissembling there's ever been. And the media tend to agree, some media, this is the, this is the Daily Mail media, of course, the Metro, alcohol and cigarettes worse than drugs. Uh, the broadsheets do tend to get it right. And so there's a polarisation, and that always leads to debate, and that's why this argument continues to be of interest to people. So this is my definition of a drug. This is uh, <laughs> one of the number of something <laughs> <laughs> Jackie Smith, of course, was here in Oxford. She said, yes, when she, was out, when she became Home Secretary, they asked her the inevitable question, did you take drugs? And she said, I smoked cannabis, but I didn't enjoy it. And you sort of think, well, well why bother, Jackie? You know, what, what was the point? I think the answer is it was, that was what you had to do to get into the, uh, the Labour Party in Oxford at the time. So, um, and David Cameron, I did things when young that I shouldn't have. We all did. Now... The we there, of course, is what's called the Eton we. And, uh, and what's interesting about the, the David is that uh, he liked to do drugs, and they all, but the drugs he really liked were, all began with the same letter as his surname. So if you want to think about that one, we'll come back and see if you got it right later on. What would I say? Our drug is a chemical, which is when David produces physiological changes. That's how a scientist would define a drug in the context of we're talking about recreational drugs, then these are substances which usually produce pleasurable or desirable effects in the brain, but which can also lead to damaging effects. And I'm going to show you two case examples here. Now, the one on the right is a girl called Leah Betts. And this is a poster that was stuck up all over the UK about 1992, when Leah Betts died of water poisoning. Um, uh, and the story is a very interesting story because she, on her 18th birthday, she took two ecstasy tablets. And so we estimate from the knowledge of the strength of ecstasy at the time, that was probably about 80 milligrams. So it was exactly the same dose as we gave in the Channel 4 program, which I'll come to at the end. And, uh, and she died because she was under the mistaken belief that if she felt strange on ecstasy, it was because she was dehydrating and therefore she should drink a lot of water. So she drank seven litres of water, and she died of water poisoning. This guy... Oh, actually, how, how many of you saw that? I mean, I, I don't want to embarrass people who are <laughs> my age, but some of you have seen that image. I mean, it was very popular image. Um, this guy, I don't suppose any of you have seen him, he, was a, he died more recently. He's one of the many students that die each year of alcohol poisoning. And he was playing in a... Exeter University golf team, and after a golf match, he got into a drinking game, and he lost the first round. So the forfeit was to drink a lot, so he drank more, and then he obviously became drunk, so he lost the second round, and they made him drink more. 
and then by the end of the third round he's dead. And uh, there are a couple of interesting distinctions between these two. So why is she on a poster board all over Britain and he's just a, a small piece in the local newspaper down in the southwest? I don't know about him because I live near Exeter, or I live near Exeter. Well, the reason these billboards were used was that at the time the drinks industry was terrified that young people were going to switch from alcohol to ecstasy. And so, at arm's length, they carried out a campaign to scare people off ecstasy. And I'll show you. It's actually quite successful. And it certainly increased the sales of alcohol. There's no campaign against alcohol because the alcohol industry spends 80 million pounds a year advertising drink in this country. And the spend by um, the Department of Health warning against the dangers of alcohol is £80,000. So they spend a thousand times more. And there's no interest in warning people of, against the harms of alcohol. In fact, although three young people a week die of alcohol poisoning in games like this or just getting drunk, there's actually no systematic information about this at all. And there's, I think, a deliberate attempt for people not to know about it. And there was a remarkable opportunity recently to really change that. And it was an opportunity that was missed. And, of course, it was Amy's death. Now, Amy's death is fascinating for a number of reasons. She died of alcohol poisoning, but she also died... <coughs> Um, I don't know, do you want to switch some lights off? And maybe the visibility of the ability? Is there, is, there, is, there a switch, is there a switch behind the door? With a light switch behind the door? <coughs> she, she was, in what the current government would say, was recovery. She had successfully stopped drinking and taking drugs. And then after a period of being clean, dry, abstinent, for about six weeks, she relapsed, as many people do. And she showed... The kind of pattern which is very typical with abstinence-based recovery, which is that when you relapse, you're much more vulnerable to the drug because you have lost tolerance. And so she died with a blood alcohol, which would probably not have killed her if she had been still been drinking at the time. And this is one issue. This is one of the first ethical questions I'm raising here. I'm not sure that the concept of imposed recovery on people with a long, I would say, an enduring illness like addiction is ethical. Uh, but that's what's happening in this country at present. It's becoming uh, almost... In, well, it was going to be the, the sole approach in terms of treatment. Because a lot of us have fought quite a strong we're in battle now with the government, it's becoming moderated. But, but this, is, this was the current ambition of this government, to define away addiction as an illness and just put, turn it into a lifestyle choice. And I'll come back to that later. And if you want to read something about this, you, this paper's coming out very shortly. It's probably my most caustic attack on the government ever, and if I disappear, I get chipped, <laughs> and they'll find me in the Thames somewhere. <laughs> so I've said about three young people a week die just of alcohol poisoning. About ten die of accidents due to intoxication. They often die in their birthdays. And one of the reasons all the assessments of the harms of cannabis, which is the other popular intoxicant, have consistently shown to be less harmful than alcohol is because no one's ever overdosed on cannabis. It's just not possible. And the other point to make, and which is sort of graphically illustrated by these vulnerable women in these images below, when the ACMD, which is, I was part of, did a review of date rape in 2004, um, 
we discovered that half of all date rapes are just due to alcohol, and the other half are due to alcohol plus other drugs, and there's no other consistent drug in date rape. But alcohol, far and away the most dangerous drug in terms of making women vulnerable to assault. And alcohol is now the leading cause of, uh, certainly the leading cause of rising death, rising organ deaths and organ damage in the country today. This is a truly startling graph. So, and this graph looks at what's called standardised mortality rates. The likelihood of anyone dying from a disorder of the circulatory system, the heart disease, the brain, cancer, respiratory disease, da, 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 over the last 40 years. So it was normalised in 1971, which is, you'll see, is a very interesting year, because that's the use of drugs that came out. And you can see that for all the organ systems, and also other deaths, for instance, from diabetes. They've almost all gone down. But they've all gone down over the last 40 years. Some have gone down to half what they were before. And that's because as a society we're healthier and because medicine's better. So it's strange that one separates <coughs> from one organ system have bucked the trend and they've gone up fivefold. And that's deaths from liver disease. And 80% of that is due to alcohol and 20% is due to hepatitis viral hepatitis. Now, this is a kind of tidal wave, an epidemic of sick of death. And you'd imagine that people would want to do something about it. Uh, if, you, if, you was, if this was SARS, if the number of people dying of influenza were doubling, there'd be a, a huge impact. This is a five-fold increase in deaths. And there's absolutely no discussion about it at all. And I think that's dishonest. The other thing that's dishonest is that you commonly see comments in the newspapers or the media about the harms of drugs. Cannabis damages your brain. One Oxford-based scientist once said that a single spliff kills a million cells in your hippocampus. And um, if, if, if there is any evidence that cannabis damages the brain, it's not published. But what is absolutely sure is that alcohol damages the brain. So here are four images of subjects who are currently in a study we're doing at present. Now, these are normal controls, in case you're not sure. And these are the alcoholics. And you can tell they're alcoholics because they've got a lot more black stuff inside their skull. The black stuff's called water. And there's more water there because the brain's shrunk. And it's obvious to any of you, you don't have to be a radiologist, to see that these brains are different from these brains. Alcohol is unquestionably damaging to These people walked into a trial. We're not looking, we're actually excluding people, alcoholics with overt brain damage. So these people are in a trial we're doing to look for treatments to help them stay abstinent. So they're consenting normally, and they're going through quite a sophisticated study where they're getting brain scanned under the influence of different anti-craving drugs. And they have extraordinary memories. These brains are abnormal as brains of people with dementia. So there's no question, alcohol, and we've known this, we have known that alcohol damages the brain uh, since we had a knowledge of the brain, really. But again, it's not talked about. And this is perhaps the most staggering statistic of all. Is it now, alcohol is the most common reason for death in men under the age of 50 in this country. And you can see here the uh, deaths 
So the, num- the deficit in the, in the age is 19 to 24, etc. It's 45 to 54. Up to this age here, 20% or so of all deaths in men are due to alcohol. These are, these are deaths directly due to alcohol, and these are deaths from cancer and traffic accidents indirectly due to alcohol. So there you have it. Alcohol, communist... So in this room, I guess maybe one or two of you men will die before you're 55. Uh, maybe one of you will die of alcohol. So this is, this is a truly health problem of massive proportions. And, it, and yet, until recently, until we got rid of him, Lansley, the health secretary, was denying it was a problem at all. And you think, why? You know, what is that? Why? Why would people be so blind? And why would? They, why is this such a huge issue? Why is it the communist cause of death? And the answer is because people are drinking. People are drinking from an early age. So initiation to alcohol now in this country. Usually, in white middle-class kids, is about 12, 13. And if we look at 15-year-olds, we see that the latest data we have, 15 to 16-year-olds, 50% of men, boys, 54% of girls, were drunk once a month. So that's three years before they're allowed to buy alcohol. And what's interesting is that pattern hasn't changed at all in 15, 16 years. So, massive, dangerous intake of alcohol in teenagers has led to that significant rise in death rates from liver disease. And we do nothing about this. The other reason for the rise in liver disease is not just people starting drinking earlier, it's that we actually consume more. And here we go back to 1970 when those statistics started to be developed, the mortality rates. And this is the consumption of alcohol, average consumption of the population. So in 1970, we were drinking about 7 litres of alcohol a year per person in the UK. And the latest data we have, drinking around about 11 litres. So it's, well, it's gone up about 60%. So generously, we can say consumption's doubled. But liver disease has gone up fivefold. And that's because there's a non-linear relationship. You can see there are two phases of a rise. This, this rise, rise in the 60s and early 70s, and this was the liberalisation of drinking. When I, so I was born in 1951, and when I tried to start drinking, I couldn't, because they wouldn't, I couldn't get alcohol, because I looked too young. To, you know, I couldn't drink in a pub until I was 18, because they could see I wasn't 18. And it was here when we started allowing alcohol to be sold outside of registered premises, licensed premises, that the first rise occurred. This was a dip when people started switching to MDMA. <coughs> and this is the alcohol response, industry response, was to produce alcohol pops. And to bring in these super strength lagers and ciders, which have led to the second, increase, second big increase. Hospital admissions have gone up from 100,000 in 1990 to 200,000 in 2004. In the 2009 data, there were a million hospital admissions for alcohol-related harm in this country, of which 13,000 were for people under the age of 18. In comparison, there were 700 emissions for cannabis and 2,000 emissions for people using stimulants like MDMA. So, not only have we have a rise in consumption, but we have a disproportionate increase in people getting into trouble. And so it really does beg the question, why? Why has the government done nothing about it? And it's largely because the drinks industry has been so 
clever at persuading politicians and the public, particularly the editors of newspapers, that there are health benefits of alcohol as well. And in fact, I gave this lecture, a similar lecture, the Dole Centre, Richard Dole Centre, which is up the hill in last year. And I asked them, I said, well, what, you, made, you know, you really, Dole made a big impact on health because he, uh, he made the link between smoking and cancer and he did something about changing it. Why didn't he deal with the second most biggest problem, which was alcohol? And, you know, that was a failure, I thought, of his part. And they said, well, it was too difficult because there were health benefits as well as health um, harms from alcohol. But I thought that was a bit of a cop-out, so I'm going to just show you why I think it's a cop-out. So here you see, here you see death rates from 15 different diseases. <coughs> going from lip cancer, <coughs> hemorrhagic stroke, cirrhosis, pancreatitis. You can see, for all of them, except this one here, there's an increase with consumption of alcohol. Some of them are enormously steep. So this is going consumption going from 80, from zero to 80 uh, units a week. The only one that doesn't show that increase is this one. This is ischemic heart disease, where there's, it's pretty flat, but there's a suggestion that there might be a slight beneficial effect of alcohol in men. And that's enough to persuade governments to do nothing. And I know that because I worked with the, their government when they did their review, and they said, because there are health benefits of alcohol, we cannot change our policy on alcohol. In the, fact, you know, in the face of all these obvious disbalances, as I say, the drinks industry has been hugely effective at promoting this concept. Do you know how much you have, the optimal amount of drink to provide that benefit is half a unit, half a unit a day, so a quarter of beer. So think about that when you're out drinking tonight. You just get one between four. Now I want to contrast that with cannabis because one of the big battles I had with government over the years was this the battle over cannabis. The government was obsessed by cannabis and wanted cannabis uh, to be controlled more vigorously than it was. Um, this is Alan Johnson, the man that sacked me. This is a, obviously a caricature. Uh, and this is me here. Um, and let's contrast cannabis with alcohol. So over the seven, that period from 1970 onwards, we have data going up to about 2003 on cannabis use. And you can see that there's been about a 20-fold increase in the number of people who use cannabis in that time. Now, we don't have consumption data, but it's very likely to be you know, 20 times more than it was then, maybe more than that. So if cannabis was causing harm, you might expect a 20-fold increase would be manifest somewhere, because as I showed you, a two-fold increase in alcohol had quintupled liver disease, liver deaths. Well, if we look at deaths, here's tobacco, kills about 80,000 a year. Half of all smokers die of smoking related Here's alcohol, about 8,000 deaths. Here's opiates, about 1,000 deaths, paracetamol, cocaine. And then there's cannabis. I mean, it's 10 to 20 deaths a year. So it isn't killing people. And, and, and so the government had a problem, because if it's not killing people, how can you justify banning it? Uh, but then, a saviour came. 
a saviour in the form of the evidence, supposed evidence, that it calls schizophrenia. And, uh, and we looked at this evidence, and I haven't got time to go into it, I can later on if you want, but we thought this evidence is actually pretty, pretty strange, because it comes from other countries. The only, the evidence, only three, there's only one study that even looked at cannabis and schizophrenia, and that was in Swedish conscripts in 1958, and, you know, one's not entirely sure how that relates to here. And then, but there was a, recent, a more recent study in New Zealand, a cohort of a thousand people, of which six of them got so-called psychotic-like effects from smoking cannabis. Uh, and those were six in a particular genetic subgroup of, of, of an enzyme that breaks down dopamine. And our view was that that, that wasn't sufficient evidence to change the UK drug laws, you know, changing anything based on six people from a study that was actually not even designed to do what it was being used to do. Was a bit, that was just a little bit overstretching the, the evidence. So we did a study in the UK. We looked at the MRC uh, GP databases for the incidence and prevalence of schizophrenia. There's incident rates of schizophrenia, here's prevalence rates. And then we said, well, let's look at psychosis as well, because you know, maybe people get psychotic but not schizophrenic. And there's no evidence that this 20-fold increase in cannabis use has had any impact on schizophrenia at all. And that's true in any, all most Western countries have shown exactly the same increase and there's no increase in schizophrenia. So this, is, this was just a, a convenient myth, we thought. And if you take the Swedish data and you say there is a risk, and maybe the risk of the order of 7%, then you have to stop 5,000 young men from ever smoking cannabis, 7,000 women, in order to stop one case of schizophrenia. <clears throat> now that's not a very useful, meaningful public health target. And uh, we argued there was no need to reclassify because cannabis isn't actually harmful. When we look at the, the harms of drugs using a very sophisticated 16-point scale uh, and a technical multi-criteria decision analysis, and this is work that started off doing with the Home Office and carried on <coughs> subsequently, you see that alcohol comes out as the most harmful drug in the UK. And, and the colour coding here is important because the blue bars are the best estimate we have of the relative harm to the user. And the red bars are estimates of the harms to society. And alcohol comes out on top because it's got a big red bar. And the big red bar is harms to society. And those harms are road traffic accidents, their violence, their spousal abuse, their child sexual abuse, and their equity of crime, etc. The most harmful drug to the user in blue bars comes out as crack cocaine, followed by heroin, crystal meth. And based on these data and previous estimates that we've used, our argument was, well, cannabis is not particularly harmful. And if you really want to make an impact on health, do something about alcohol. Don't obsess about cannabis. And it was obvious that the attack on cannabis was about gaining political points. It wasn't about doing anything sensible about the harms of, uh, of drugs. I want to say a few words now about the way in which we control drugs in this country, because it's complicated, uh, uh, but it's, it's important to know about it, because it, a lot of people get confused. 
So the first thing to say is that some drugs are controlled and some drugs aren't. So the drugs that are not controlled are alcohol, tobacco and solvents. But there, there is a degree of control. And the control comes from the age of purchase and obviously from taxation. These drugs have a disproportionately high taxation in comparison with these drugs, which are just vatted. So these get 20% and these drugs get of the order of three or 400%. Other drugs are controlled by either the Medicines Act, if they're medicines, or the Misuse of Drugs Act, if they're so-called recreational drugs. And we're one of only two countries in the world which puts the control of recreational drugs <coughs> into, under the control of the, essentially the police as opposed to the health providers. And that immediately presents a problem because so many drugs which are so-called recreational drugs are also medicines. <coughs> and uh, um, one of the big problems then is how you make sure that medicines which are necessary drugs that necessary as medicines get appropriately used and looked after. And there are other problems. In 2004, five rather, we, we wrote this foresight report on the future of drugs, and we said several things are going to happen in the next 25 years. It was a 25-year vision. We said there will be new synthetics, and we said there'd be internet pur purchase, and we said the Misuse of Drugs Act wasn't fit for purpose. And of course we were right, and the internet purchase started faster than we anticipated, and the synthetic grew faster than we anticipated. But part of that is due to the fact that we haven't got a rational response to them. So we're actually fueling the innovation. The Misuse of Drugs Act itself is actually quite a clever piece of legislation. It was set up in 1971. Um, Jim Callaghan was the Home Secretary in the late 60s who developed it. And the Labour Party at the time realised that drugs were too important an issue to be left to politicians. Because politicians have a very simplistic view of the world, and that is, what have I got to do to get re-elected? And everything else is subservient to that. And they could see, and I'll show you an example of this in a minute, that crazy things were happening in political debates about drugs. So they said, let's get drug decision-making out of politics. Let's give it to the experts. Let's set up a committee called the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And let's make them decide if a drug should be illegal. And if it should be illegal, what the classification, the regulation should be. And, as I say, it was a very forward-looking piece of legislation. Gordon Brown, when he uh, took over as uh, when he was um, Chancellor, he brought in something similar with interest rates. It was becoming clear in the 90s that you couldn't let Parliament decide about interest rates because you could destroy the country simply to get a few MPs re-elected. So he gave interest rate decisions to the Bank of England. And this, was, this sort of predated that. So this is, a kind of, this is a wise thing to do. When things are really important, you don't want politicians you know, making a mess of things. So that's what they did. The classes determine the penalty. So class A, you can go to prison for seven years for possession. Class B for five years. Class C for two years. And for supply, it's life, 14 years and 14 years. You might say, hang on, why is, why is supply the same for B and C? It didn't used to be, when it was, the act was first set up, it was seven years for supply of a Class C drug. But when cannabis was downgraded from B, A and B to C in 2004, the government got scared and said, well, we're going to downgrade it, but we're going to make supply uh, up to 14 years. 
Now, there are a couple of other interesting quirks about the Act. Um, well, the first is, when you share this with people from other sort of Western civilised countries like the Netherlands, they say, you must be joking. Did you really put someone in prison for five years for cannabis possession? Or seven years for having MDMA tablets? And, you know, and the answer is we do. Weird, but we do. The second interesting thing, and this is, I think, a very interesting ethical question for those of you. How many of you actually are ethicists? Okay, good. You know, this, I think it's a really interesting question. The only people in this country who can be prosecuted for having a drug in their body are prisoners. That's, so we have a law in this country, and most countries, but not all. Once the drug's inside you, you can be prosecuted. <laughs> I think it's a hugely important. I mean, there are people who would like to change that. In fact, one of the things, that, one of the insidious moves now is for roadside testing of drugs in, in drivers. Uh, and I think oh, that's moving towards the idea that you know, if you test positive for drugs at all, you, know, you could be then prosecuted rather than uh, uh, just relying on you having some defect in your driving. But put that to one side, in this country at present, the only people that can get uh, prosecuted for taking a drug are prisoners. And, and that's a very interesting that produces a very interesting change in the way prisoners take drugs. Because it used to be that prisoners took cannabis, and the prisons were nice and calm, and everyone was happy. Uh, and the ward was like wandering around because they could sort of have passive ingestion. Things were good. And um, then cannabis was taken out of prisons because it's so easy. You know, you test positive cannabis for several weeks, if not months. So now prisoners take GHB, and buprenorphine, and heroin because it doesn't hang around so long. So you're less likely to be found having a drug in your body. So there's another example of the perverse consequences of constricting drug access. I mentioned that. And also just mentioned the fact that other countries have done something completely different. They have decriminalized all drug use, like Portugal. And, and Portuguese <coughs> saved an awful lot of money by doing that. Now, anyone want to hazard a guess what it costs in this country to Pursue current cannabis policy. <clears throat> well, the best estimate we have, it costs half a billion pounds a year to prosecute uh, cannabis. So that's making street arrests and giving out criminal, um, giving out warnings and giving people convictions of cannabis. Half a billion pounds a year. So that's more than it costs to run this university. It's weird, but true. So here are some interesting political untruths about drugs. The first is that drugs are controlled because they are harmful. Well, I've shown you that's not true already because alcohol is the most harmful and it's not controlled. The second is alcohol is not a drug and it's health promoting. I've shared that with you. Banning drugs reduces uses and harms. That's also very challenging. Criminalization is a way to reduce your abuse. And addiction is a lifestyle choice. I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of these. I've shown you that. <clears throat> so this is my picture of um, Meryl Streep, <laughs> who's become known as Margaret Thatcher. Um, and she was an interesting woman, because she was obviously from Oxford. She was a chemist. You think she'd know a lot about science. And she did. She did show uh, some maturity when confronted in, I think, about 1988 uh, with, by the ACMD. And he, they'd done an assessment of the, the rise in AIDS, which was emerging in Western countries. 
And they realised that AIDS would be a big problem. And the driver at that time was predominantly intravenous drug users. And they went to Margaret and they said, uh, we need to bring in two policies. We need to bring in opiate substitution treatment like methadone and we need to bring in needle exchange. And she said, well, Tories do not do needle exchange. And they, they chatted to her and they said, look, you have to think about your legacy. Do you want to be remembered as doing needle exchange or do you want to be remembered as doing AIDS? And, uh, and she turned. Maybe the only time in her life she actually did turn. And she said, okay, you're the experts. You tell us what to do. So we did. We did needle exchange and we did OSC. And we were brilliant. Britain became uh, world leaders in this policy of essentially prophylaxis against HIV through these rational policies. And we became an exemplar. Other countries came to see how to do it and learn from us. I mean, she wasn't all good. She did actually close down an injecting clinic, a shooting gallery in Liverpool, because the American government didn't like the fact that the guy that was running it went on American TV and said how good it was. But she did at least do one good thing. Then we move on to her successor. Um, that's the one on the left. That's Blair, I think. And the one that actually, they kind of merged, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, and things went a bit askew when Tony took over. Again, yeah, you can't blame him. You can't blame his university, can you? He was at Oxford as well. But um, Oxford, uh, sorry, Tony got quite, uh, he got quite entranced by the concept of war. As you know, he, he wanted... See, the problem was Margaret had won a war. She had won the Falklands War. And so she was a proper prime minister, you know, alongside Churchill, um, you know, Wellington. Um, and Tony needed to win a war. And uh, so he waged a war in Iraq, of course, based on the untruths about weapons of mass destruction. And then when he was waging that war, he spent a lot of time with George. And George was completely obsessed with the war on drugs. And we, and we know this because we would get, the ACMD would get regular pressure from the, from the Foreign Office to become harder on drugs because the Americans didn't like the way we were not doing things. We kept getting pressure to be harder on cannabis, to be harder on cat, uh, etc. And I think, you know, words were being said between the two of them. But anyway, we had the war in Iraq, and I think Tony then got really enthused about wars. And in fact, we know, although it's, we know it from one or two civil servants who told us, but not from his, his autobiography, that he decided after the war in Iraq he was going to have a war on drugs. And he set up a war cabinet, an unminuted cabinet, um, <coughs> people from defence, people from the police, people from customs and excise, and they decided to fight a war on drugs, and which is illegal because governments are not allowed to make decisions about drugs without consulting the statutory body, the ACMD. But as we know, illegality wasn't a big hurdle for, for Tony to jump over. Now, one of the things about wars is that they change the way people think, and there's a lot of uh, comments have been made about wars in, over the years. There are two great ones here. Obviously, the first casualty of war is the truth. And, and the first the volley in the war was mushrooms. And the second axiom about war is that once at war, all reason is treason. And I didn't actually know that this war was being fought, because of course no one did. It was a secret. But I, I was obviously arguing for reason 
and that was seen as treason in the face of this war on drugs. And the justifications for the war to reduce the harms of drugs to society, well, that's the perfectly reasonable, you know, we would like to reduce the harms of drugs to society, obviously. And to reduce the harms of drugs to the user. And the logic went like this, well, we're going to criminalise you, and we'll even imprison you to protect you from the possible harms of drug use. And that's a, that's a really quite a big statement, but it's the way thinking was going in government. So what happened was that cannabis was eventually recriminalised from or upgraded from C to B, so people could be uh, given up to five years' possession. And the last Labour government, as some of you will probably know, brought in more laws than any government in history. And one of the things it did, and you probably don't know this, but you should know it, and you should make sure your children know it, is that if you get caught in possession of cannabis, <coughs> it's an arrestable offence. Everything's arrestable these days. They can look, whatever you do, they can take you to the police cells. And if they've got cannabis on you, they can then search your home, because they'll assume <coughs> that you're a drug dealer. And they then, if they find anything, they'll, they will make the supposition that you are a dealer and they'll freeze your assets under the process of crime act. And they'll keep them frozen until you go to court and get a, get a conviction for possession. And then they make, they'll freeze these up. So they will mess with your life big time. And this is the real problem with cannabis, because up to half young people try cannabis. Very few experience health harm. There's very little harm to society. And the current policy is criminalizing young people which gives them a criminal record. And that then makes life very difficult for them. And, I would, are, uh, and the other thing they're doing is they're actually reducing access to people with pain and spasticity to cannabis. And I would argue that's not just, and that was what I was arguing, and that's why I got sacked. Well, you might say, well, was I really, was I maybe exaggerating things a little? No, I wasn't. So here, this is what happens during the period where we have the last, the last data we have. So this goes back to 2004 and 5. There are 88,000 convictions for cannabis possession that year. And then the police were incentivized. They were cannabis, <coughs> convicting people for cannabis possession was a police target. And it's got to be the lowest hurdle for any policeman. Because anyone, you know, it's, in London it's very easy. You just stop a black guy on a tube, uh, at a tube station, and there's 50% chance he'll have some cannabis on him. So here you see it gets racked up and racked up. So... By the end of uh, the last, say, data period, we had 158,000 people. Now, there are now a million people in this country, that's over 1% of the population, have convictions for cannabis possession. I don't know what Oxford does in terms of letting students in if they declare uh, any record. But all I do know is it's hard to get into the civil service, it's hard to get into, into medicine, it's hard to get into many jobs with a criminal record. So this is completely ridiculous. Hugely expensive, as I've told you, and also racist, obviously, because we know that there's a considerable over-representation of black and other minority groups. And one of the reasons we had the riots in London was because the new police commissioner decided he was going to start arresting people in Tottenham uh, and finding cannabis on them. And, that, and, and people don't like that. They don't like it for several reasons, because they know it's less harmful than possible. And, and they also know it's not harming them. And of course they're right. And one of the bizarre things is we've known they're right for a very long time. Now, if we go back a hundred years, we have this woman here called Queen Victoria, who in those days was probably about as important as Kate Middleton is now. You know, I mean, people looked up to her and um, <laughs> wanted to be like her. And uh, 
And she was interesting. She used, was prescribed cannabis by her physician. It was a medicine. Cannabis had been a medicine for 4,000 years. Uh, and she used it for period pains. She used it for the pains of childbirth. And I sometimes, in my more mischievous moments, I think she probably used it at other times, which is why she had so many children, but <laughs> I don't have any evidence to support that. And it was a medicine that was used safely by the Empress of the world. And it was legal in this country until 1971. And then two GPs in London were prescribing it uh, as a tincture for people to put onto their tobacco and they were telling them to smoke it. And this is why the Misuse of Drugs Act was brought in. Because the Parliament at the time decided to ban the drug. Rather than just stop the doctors doing it, they decided to ban the drug. Ridiculous. But what it's done has made it impossible for people who might benefit from cannabis, like Queen Victoria, to use it. So in 100 years, we've gone from this to this. This is one of the many examples I have of how the law has been enacted. Here's a Scottish ex-teacher in her 50s. She's an ex-teacher because she's got multiple sclerosis. She's in a wheelchair. She uses cannabis. And her front door has been smashed down by police on three occasions in the past few years. Now, you know, they don't need to smash the door now because she, they rang the bell. She doesn't want to come and open it. She can't escape. She's in a wheelchair. She can't jump out the window. But, but when you are fighting a war, war allows police to smash down the door. In fact, and some police like doing that. And um, now, if she gets convicted again, she'll go to prison. Because we have to go to prison after three convictions. So her life is in the hands of the police. The police just want to send her to prison. They can. They can just go again. Because she carries on using Because it's the only thing that provides relief. Now, you might say, well, you know, why shouldn't she be allowed to? How, how is this harming society? And of course it's not. But it is breaking the law. And sadly, some people think that's a really bad thing. In this country, this is now I'm talking about England and Wales, not Scotland. We've had, we have a system of common law. And one of the interesting aspects of common law is that we have a thing called the defense of necessity. So essentially, if you, if you have to commit a crime, with the exception of murder, to protect yourself from death or serious injury, you can plead the defense of necessity. And that was what people used to do until 2005. And then in 2005, so cannabis users, they used to say, it's the only thing that helps me. I have to grow it, so I have to use it, so don't put me in prison or don't permit me. And they were, they were winning some of these cases. That was irritating the government. So they then looked at this medical defense. This is the defense of necessity. And in 2005, the law lords decreed that for cannabis only, this was no longer allowed. So you can still say, I have to eat the mushrooms for my headaches, or I have to take crack cocaine because I get muscle pain. You can use that defense. But you cannot use it for cannabis. And this actually has, is very hated by magistrates. Because it means if, if the police bring someone with cannabis to a magistrate's court, the magistrates must convict because there is no defense. Now, if all patients who are caught are convicted, so the police, police, police have total jurisdiction. They either you either get a criminal record or you don't, depending on. So the, the real message here is never be lippy to a policeman if you've got cannabis on board, because that, that will determine whether you get a conviction or not. 
You can have your assets seized if they decide they think you're a dealer. And the three law lords that came up with this decision, so getting rid of 600 years of English common law, were Bingham, Carswell and Roger. Why did they do it? Well, they were influenced by the government's refusal. The House of Lords had said, we should have additional cannabis. But the Labour government in 2000 said, we won't, because the, the electorate won't like it. So they were essentially doing what the government told them. And you can read about this in a blog I wrote a few years ago. This is truly the most despicable law that's been enacted, uh, certainly in relation to health, probably ever in this country. And it's one of the laws that we would like to change. But what's even worse is the history of this in terms of the law lords. So when Bingham was made a law lord in 2002, he was questioned by the spectator and the editor at the time was Boris Johnson, who said, so you would legalise cannabis? And he said, absolutely. It's stupid having a law which isn't doing what it's there for. And then three years later, he destroys, he takes away the one option that people using it medicinally have to avoid being convicted. And if you really want an example of how the British establishment is completely under the control of the government, that is it. So that's absolutely despicable. However, we have a bit of good news now. So that's the, there is an alternative, there's an evidence-based alternative to criminalising cannabis users, and that's called the Eaton Experiment. <laughs> um, that's young David Cameron, that's just after he left Eaton, I think. Uh, this is Josh Astor. So there were several, uh, a group of young, uh, rich men in Oxford in the 1980s who were caught smoking cannabis. And the headmaster accidentally did one of the very few controlled trials on how to deal with cannabis use in young people. The story is this, that parties of up to ten boys were going into East London to buy Reggie records and they were having a little brown bag put inside the big bag with their LPs. I realise some of you haven't a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> An LP is a big old round plastic thing that used to play music. Yes. Okay. And because he'd only smoked cannabis and not sold it, Cameron and a number of others were not thrown out. What happened to them was they were fined. I don't know how much. They were gated. They weren't allowed to go out to the Betty's Tea Shop on Saturday afternoon in Windsor. And they were given a Georgic, which is copying out hundreds of lines of Latin. And he won't say what the lines were, but I think I know. I think they were these. I think it was And <laughs> <laughs> I think this is an extraordinarily rational approach to how to deal with people who were caught smoking cannabis at school. Make them write lines. This is the this is the Portuguese approach. These are, these are non-criminal sanctions. You know, boy, you know how much. How many times are you prepared to write for a single split? Well, you know, I mean, I think people would probably give up something. Seven boys were expelled, including Astor. Uh, I think five were suspended and four were gated, including Cameron. I can't find out who they all were. I haven't been able to follow all their careers. But I've, I'm just going to use Cannabis and Astor as a comparison. So Astor comes from an even wealthier family. And uh, a family that has strong traditions in the British Parliament. And since being expelled from school, he's had a very troubled career. Just like most people who are expelled from school for taking drugs. If you're not in school, what else is there to do on the streets but drugs? And that's what happens. So expelling people from school just magnifies their chance of getting into drug problems, like Astor did. Whereas Cameron 
went from being the most difficult boy I have ever taught in the words of the headmaster to David C, David Cameron, or cannabis, or cocaine, depending on <laughs> which drug we're talking about. And, um, and he disagreed. And, and, and when he became an MP, it was quite progressive, because we had a, a Home Secretary. The last Home Secretary under the Tories was a man called Howard, the Prince of Darkness. And he was very angry that people, kids were having raves, because the Daily Mail didn't like kids having raves. And they said, we won't support you unless you get rid of raves. So Howard cracked down on raves. Actually, the police didn't even want to crack down. They liked them to raise as well. It was the first time people were nice to them when they were up on ecstasy. <laughs> and one of the reasons David was sensible about this, because Sam Cam, who was a Bristol student at the time, used to go to raves. Uh, um, and he was very sensible. On the first, the Home Affairs Select Committee in 2002, he said the drug laws aren't working, ecstasy should be class B, we should change everything. And of course, no nothing got changed except him. Because as soon as he became the leader of the Tory party, he changed his name from David to Dave, which I resent because I'm a Dave. <laughs> he retracted his views on ecstasy the day after he was made. And now, and then he brought in in 2011 a drugs bill, which is trying to get rid of the concept of addiction as an illness and saying it's essentially a lifestyle choice, just like it was with Amy. Now, I know the reason they think this, and I'm going to show you on the next slide. So, so the, the reason that the Tories think that addiction is a lifestyle choice is because when they were young, there they are, here's Boris, Boris Johnson, here's Cameron. Osborne, the Chancellor, wasn't allowed to be in the picture because he was uh, from the wrong school. He was at Westminster and not Eton, so they wouldn't take a photo of him, but he was in the club. This is called the Bullington Club. The Bullington Club is a very famous Oxford club which was set up so that young men could get very drunk and have sex with women outside the boundaries of Oxford in Bullingdon. I think that's where you live, Phil, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, and these guys, these guys uh, meet, they take lots of drugs, they have to because they drink so much they'd be asleep otherwise, and then they go and do things like smash up restaurants, and then they pay off the police with large amounts of £50 notes. So this was a, this was a drinking, drug-taking tradition of Oxford in those days. I don't know if it still goes on, but probably it's a bit less overt. I don't think you can afford the uniforms anymore. Um, these people all were very into drugs until they decided to get into politics and then they stopped. Well, except for Boris, of course. <laughs> and, um, the belief that you can have a very excessive lifestyle with drugs and then suddenly become a politician and live functionally, that, that has directed very much their thinking. If we could do it, why can't everyone do it? Well, of course, they don't quite understand that they come from a different background and that many addicts come from extremely... Uh, so the average income of one of these people would be less than that uniform would cost per year. Because that's about 7,000 quid worth of clothes. So anyway, there is a sort of bias uh, in terms of the, the attitude to addiction, I think driven by the fact that uh, they have a slightly distorted view of the world. I'm going to finish very shortly now, but I just want to talk a little bit more about the media malignant influence the media have on our understanding about drugs. Fantastic PhD. This guy looked through every um, post-mortem report, every coroner's report in Scotland in the 1990s. And they do a better job than we do in terms of looking at drugs. And he looked at every single case in which a drug other than alcohol was reported. And he found there were 2,255 deaths with a drug in the body at the time of death. And he saw about one in four of them 
were reported in the newspapers. So he was interested to know whether there was any bias in terms of reporting. And surprise, surprise, he found enormous bias. So only one of the 265 paracetamol deaths were reported in the newspapers, even though almost every one of those would have died of paracetamol poisoning. One in 72 morphine deaths. Although there were very few amphetamine deaths, much more interesting, there was one in three, one in eight cocaine, wasn't it? One in 16 methadone. But the drug that always got reported was ecstasy. And the reason people think ecstasy is very dangerous is because that's all they read about in the newspapers. Even though paracetamol kills at least ten times more people than ecstasy. And this bias in the newspapers is absolutely systemic in this country. And I would argue it's also unethical. That was in the 90s. This is the late 2000s. This is methadone. And there's a very unholy alliance between the police and the media. I have to tell you this story because it's one of the most bizarre phone calls of my life. I was in a taxi. I was actually in Barcelona giving a lecture. And I got phoned up by CNN. And I did an interview with them two days before on Lefferdrug. And they said, where's Scunthorpe? <laughs> Only some of you, a few of you, will understand the joke, yes. And I said, why do you want to go to Scunthorpe? And... Um, and they said, well, because the Humberside police have called an international press conference to tell the world that two young men have died from taking methadone. I said, that that's impossible. I mean, we knew, we'd known at that time, you know, a quarter of a million Israeli kids were using it regularly and no one had died I said, it's impossible. It cannot be true that these two guys have died taking methadone. But I said, go up the M1, four hours, turn right. And that's where Stonethorpe is, for those of you who haven't a clue what I'm talking about. It's a town somewhere north of Lincoln. And when they got there, they would have heard these press police telling the world about these possible deaths. They obviously believed on no evidence at all that these two guys had died of methadone. And this guy's dad said... I don't want him to be labelled a druggie because he wasn't. He was just on a night out with friends, enjoying himself. A normal, caring, hard-working lad. Now, everything about that is true apart from this word, druggie, because he was a druggie. He was an alcohol druggie. He'd been out on a Sunday night. They'd been to about six bars. They got so drunk that they then went and took a drug, which they thought might... I think I don't know what they thought, but it, they might have been seeking methadone, but they actually died methadone, with methadone. And so this, but this case was so hysterical, everyone, people wanted to believe methadone was killing people. The media and the police joined in, and the drug got banned. And when you look at the way governments talk about drugs, you realise that nothing has moved on in a hundred years. So here we have the argument for making cocaine illegal in the 1920s. We've got to stamp out the evil of cocaine, and now we're going to stamp out the evil of methadone. And, you know, most GCSE students understand that, that drugs don't have a they don't have emotion, they can't shoot evil. I mean, yeah, attributing the problem to the drug is infantile and it's lazy, and it, this recycled rhetoric is just garbage. Now, one of the reasons I, I'm fascinated by methadone because it got banned and it's carried on being used. People now inject it because it's more expensive, so it you know, that's just the way it goes when you ban things. But when you look back over the methadone, you discover there were some unexpected benefits. And this is the most amazing one. 
Now, all the time, I worked for the government all through this period here, from here to here, I saw the rising wave of cocaine deaths. I kept thinking, how can we stop people dying from cocaine? And we didn't, couldn't do anything. But as soon as the market brings in a safer substitute and people switch, because cocaine is actually rubbish quality, people switch to methadone. So methadone saved, in the first year, 40 deaths. I don't know if it killed anyone, maybe it killed a few people. But this was a, this was a, a life-saving drug. But it got banned, and now we don't know whether it's going to carry on saving. It won't now, probably, because if people are injecting you because it's so expensive, then it may kill people. But it got me thinking. It got me thinking, could the same be true of other drugs? Could there be benefits we're not gaining because we banned these drugs? And this is from the other place called Cambridge. I want to share with you this concept. So these are two people who I think benefited from taking LSD. And this one on the left is a guy called Francis Crick. He was at Cambridge, which is where I was as an undergraduate. And um, he was trying to solve the problem of DNA. And are any biochemists here? No, they're drinking already, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to do it using x-ray diffraction. And they got these really weird, weird pictures. Couldn't make sense of these weird pictures. And of course, I couldn't make sense of weird pictures because no one had ever thought that molecules could exist as helices. And certainly no one ever thought of a double helix. And under the influence, in, well, part of the cracking this code was because under the influence of LSD, he saw the world differently. And this guy, Kerry Mullis, uh, worked out how to decode DNA. And again, he gives a very beautiful description of how under the influence of LSD he saw how you would ask the question about what, how DNA is made and how you would answer that question. So he was, became a great advocate of LSD as a way for scientists to get insights. And these both took it before it was banned. And, and, and these are the two most important Nobel Prizes in medicine ever. The reason we know that our burgers have got horse meat in them is because this man invented the technology to tell us that. Uh, and since it's been banned, I don't think scientists use it anymore. And I, you know, I, when my sort of joke is, you know, the Higgs boson wouldn't have been hidden for so long if some of the physicists <laughs> wisened up. And in fact, most drugs that are banned have uses, but they're very, very hard to develop. And I won't go through them all. But these drugs all have potential. And methadone, amazing, was being developed as a treatment for addiction. And then it was shown to work because it reduced it. Oh, reduce cocaine deaths, and yet now it's banned, companies won't work. As soon as the drug's banned, drug companies won't work in the field. It's too complex, expensive in terms of regulations. So these drugs all have potential, but getting funding to research with illegal drugs is really difficult, which is why we went to Channel 4. Now, this is another ethical question. Is it ethical to take research money from television companies? And I think, it, I mean, obviously I think it is, because I did. Um, but the only people that would fund a study of the effects of MDMA in the brain were Channel 4. The MRC wouldn't fund it. They said it's not addiction, so we're not interested. Welcome to us, don't come near us. <laughs> Legal drugs, we don't do that. And the channel, these people came, and we were able to do a study. Uh, uh, people don't want to do anything that might show these drugs could have beneficial effects. We did this study because I'm interested in the use of MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. 
we know it, it can be useful. We think it works by dampening down the arousal that people have when they have to relive the memories. The way you get rid of traumatic memories is to relive them and then wipe out the emotional element so you can just have the, the declarative memory. And it's the emotions which mess with people. It's not the fact that it happened. And MDMA helps people engage in therapy and not have the severe breakdowns when they get to the emotions. And we wanted to understand why that might be. So we did this study. We did a study in, in the PET scan, in an MRI scanner, where we induce negative memories and positive memories. And we showed that MDMA makes positive memories more positive, but it makes negative memories less negative. So that was the first uh, approach. No one's, ever, no one's ever, ever done that before. There's only one other imaging study ever of MDMA because getting funding to do things that might be useful is frowned on. And we were able to show that the, the brain regions which regulate emotion were profoundly affected by the, uh, taking MDMA. So we've now got a neurocircuitry which may help uh, explain. And here's, a, here's an example. We weren't studying people with PTSD. But, of course, what we didn't realize, actually, if you ask people to come up with their eight worst memories, many people have got a little bit of PTSD, as this, patient, this volunteer of ours had. And as she said, when I reached back for the bad memories, they didn't seem so bad. So this is an example, even in a, non, not a, not a, not a non-patient, there are still benefits, you can see the benefits. And this may be why MDMA is liked by people. Okay, so I'm going to finish brief now by just saying, I think the drug laws are very bad in terms of doing what they're supposed to do, reduce harm. I don't think they do, I think they aggravate harm. I think a million people with convictions is a serious harm that is really indefensible. But they do more than that, I've just shown you. They actually make research on drugs really difficult. And Phil Cameron was heard. Phil wants to study a non-psychoactive version, derivative of cannabis. So it's not even controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act. But the Home Office are making him, and they spent a year trying to get a license to study this drug, just in case it might be psychoactive. Just in case. It's absurdity. That, you know, the fear of, uh, of, of psychoactive drugs. Anyway, so this paper is coming out next month. It's a, it's a critique of the way in which the drug laws have impeded scientific research. So the point I'm going to make in a press release, I'm going to say this. You've heard it first here. I think the impact of the drug laws to censor scientific research is the worst example of scientific censorship since the Catholic Church stopped Galileo using the telescope. Now, I may be wrong, but if I am, I'd like to know where the worst examples are. The only comparable example in my lifetime is George Bush banning embryonic stem cell research. But that didn't matter because it was only in the USA. But the drug laws, which we, this country, signs up to, these are the, the 1960 and 1970 United Nations Convention, and every country in the world has signed up to. And they stop research everywhere. And I'm going to finish with a couple of other more radical things that we could do to make life more sensible. I'm particularly interested in this. Modern neuroscience and modern psychopharmacology allows us to make a drug which would be like alcohol, but it wouldn't rot the liver, the guts, the brain, the heart. Wouldn't be addictive. Probably wouldn't cause as much violence. 
and would have an antidote. So you could go to the pub tonight, have fun, take an antidote and drive home simply. Now, from my perspective, I would see, if I was being a rational person, if I was coming from another planet perhaps, I said, wouldn't that be the ultimate goal of science? <laughs> well, of course it would. But when I try to get funding to do this, I have about six candidates for this. When I try to get funding to do this, the funders say, well, okay, so it's going to work. They say, how can you be sure the government won't ban it? And I have to answer honestly, well, you can't... The tribunals are so irrational, they might ban it. In fact, I would guarantee that the Daily Mail would soon find that it caused people to tear their scrotums off, which is their favourite explanation for and people and it would get and that is the problem. We live in a world where people ban drugs with no evidence simply because newspaper owners like to ban drugs. And we could make safe versions of anything. Anyway, I'm gonna finish now. I guess ethicists probably would know about this. This, might, this is the quote that I think I'm, I find most satisfying in terms of how we should be thinking about any kind of legislation. In a freedom-loving society, no conduct by rational adults should be criminalised unless it's harmful to others. And I, I sort of assumed that, 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 that in the UK at least, what we tried to do as a country and as a government was based on these principles. But after 10 years of working with them, I realised actually this is completely irrelevant. Uh, all that matters is beating UKIP in the next election. <laughs> And I'm going to finish now. This is the book you should all read. It's uh, not expensive. It's only a tenner. All the proceeds go to the ISCD, the charity. And if most of you should buy it for your parents, because it's a really easy, cheap present, and they'll enjoy it. Thank you very much. <laughs>